0: there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and the upcoming Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. And in the middle there, I wrote a book called Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. They're all great. You'll want to start with the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And the good news is you can get that as an audiobook, a uh, paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, we have moved the date on the third book to June 14th due to the ongoing COVID 19 situation. Uh, which reminds me, I should mention, we are recording this episode on April 15th. Uh, It will air, uh, I believe, a couple of weeks from now. The reason I'm saying that is because whatever happened between April 15th when we had this conversation and when you're listening to it, we don't know about. So we're not aware that the aliens landed uh, and have uh, brought uh, with them a cure for all of our our, our ills. But we will be thrilled to find out when we catch up (laughs) to the future with you. Uh, Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write adult horror novels such as the young adult novel Altogether Now, A Zombie Story, and The Book of David. The Book of David is five volumes long. If you've been faithfully watching the show, you saw that I uploaded a free audiobook of the first chapter of The Book of David. uh, And that should still be waiting for you. uh, If you want to go back a couple episodes in the stream or if you want to head to middlegradeninja.com, you can listen to me read that book to you, or you can download the ebook for free and check that out. Uh, as always, keep up with what's going on with the show. Read interviews with hundreds of uh, literary agents, authors, editors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in. I've been compiling uh, interviews for years, and they're all available to you for free at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and that's all I feel like talking about now. Let's get to it. I am uh, thrilled to chat with Carly Sorosiak tonight. Uh, Carly, how are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing?
0: i um, pretty good, except I'm pretty sure I just mutilated your last name, even though. I, yeah, <laughs> I that it's
1: that. So my I haven't taken my husband's last name yet, and this keeps being an issue between us because his last name is Carr. So it would be Carly Carr, which is a lot easier to remember, but you're laughing, which is why I haven't taken it, because it is a silly, silly name. Um, So potentially later on in the future, everyone will just be interviewing Carly Carr and it'll be a whole lot easier than Soros Yak. But I tell my students it's like a sore rose and a Yak together, um, and that seems to be helpful. Not a very pretty last name, but there we go.
0: Oh, I think it's lovely. I'm laughing because I I would never forget if I chatted with the Carly Carr. Yes, Uh,
1: I I know it is. It is like either. I think feel like that's the perfect like I write for like three to five year olds. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I can see it. I can see it on a picture book. But um, it is it is memorable. Yeah. Got the good I alliteration tried.
0: my uh, wife uh, had orders that if for some reason she didn't survive the delivery of my son her her mother was to come in and stop me because i desperately wanted to name him clark because i figured for the rest of your life you'd remember if you met clark kent
1: oh absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean i my great-grandfather if i was going to be a boy um wanted my name to be chester louis so i don't think you'd forget a chester louis either <laughs> no, it's, pretty- it's kind of an iconic name um some sometimes I wish that, you know, that could still be my name. It would have the same initials. CNS. It's good.
0: There's always time.
1: <laughs> always time. Yeah. If we if we if I have a son, just maybe that will name would be passed down, bestowed upon him. Who knows?
0: Probably the best place to get started is um, I never summarize other people's books because I'll spoil them and I never uh, try never to summarize other people's biographies, um, especially why why would I make you sit through that (laughs) when you're when you're right there so if you would please give esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background.
1: Okay. Um, again, my name is Carly Seroziak. I write middle grade books and also books for young adults. So I have two books for young adults. One is called If Birds Fly Back, and the other is called Wild Blue Wonder, and they're both published by HarperCollins. Um, and my first middle book, middle grade book, just came out. is called I Cosmo, and it is told from the perspective of a 13-year-old golden retriever who just desperately wants to keep his family together because they're going through a divorce. And one of the things that he thinks will help is entering a doggy dance competition. With his human boy. And I really just loved writing this narrative. I love, love, love animals um, and especially dogs. So getting into a dog's head was honestly one of the greatest joys of my life. And watching doggy dance competitions for research was pretty awesome. Um, So by day, I teach at the Savannah College of Art and Design. So I teach creative writing. So right now, I'm teaching fiction and also a portfolio class. for kind of graduating seniors, which is really interesting because they are graduating into a world that has been completely transformed. So trying the best I can to help get them on their feet and make sure that they are kind of entering the world with a really strong um, writing portfolio. So I also have an American dingo um, named Danny, And that's quite important because I talk about her a lot. And she's also during the quarantine has been my faithful writing companion and also has photobombed every single one of my Zoom sessions uh, because she likes to sleep underneath my desk. So that's a little bit about me. But yeah, I Cosmo out for Candlewick right now. Um, and I think you'll probably like it if you like dogs. Yes, there he is. <laughs> He's such a good boy.
0: Uh, this is an utterly charming book. You know, I've got all kinds of questions for you about your experience teaching writing. Uh, I want to ask you about your your background uh, with all the things that you've done. But why don't we just start with that uh, with I, Cosmo. Um. So what is the key to getting in the head of a dog? How do you how do you prepare for that?
1: I have been preparing for this for my entire life and I actually told a really embarrassing story to my students the other day, which I'm going to share with you as well. Um, But when I was in first grade, I really thought that if I tried hard enough that I could turn into a wolf. And one of the reasons that I thought that was because I heard that wolves could hold their bladder for a really, really long time. So I actually practiced and practiced so hard holding my bladder that I got a kidney infection and had to go to the hospital. So like this is how much I wanted to be a dog. I was little. um, I was very, very committed to it. My parents have always had dogs. We've always had dogs in our family and they have always been my best friends. So um, my dog Sally, when we were growing up, she was actually our neighbor's dog. And I used to talk to her through the fence. I would read stories to her. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up. And I think that dogs were I was about to say were the people, but that's kind of how I feel about them. Dogs were the people that I was able to connect with the best. Um, They're really, really great listeners. I also had a golden retriever named Ralphie growing up, and my family is not super skilled at talking to each other a lot, but what we used to do over our family dinners was we would talk about Ralph's day in his voice of like, what he did during the day, and comes almost like a like a Ralphie newspaper of like, oh today I did this. And so we, I've had this voice of Ralph's voice in my mind for a really really long time. So Cosmo is essentially Ralphie mixed with um, some bits of Sally and other neighborhood
0: dogs. It's just a, you, you. You've been training this for your whole life. <laughs> yes.
1: yes, I I feel like this is what I was born to do was to talk about dogs and advocate for dogs and just other animals. So I if I wasn't a writer, I would probably be some sort of dogologist or um which I just realized was a thing because I'm I'm researching actually another book now and in a dogologist is a real career path. It's just people who research dogs and um I kind of wish I had known that was a that was a thing. When I was going to school, because uh, that would have been a real, a real game changer. But I still like writing very much.
0: Well, I mean, this is, it's, life is long and strange. There's still time.
1: <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking. I was telling my husband, I, I get these kind of whims where all of a sudden I think, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to take up woodworking. Like this is what I burst in to the living room a couple days ago. It's like, you have no, you're afraid of saws. Like you failed shop. Like there's a lot of elements there that you probably wouldn't be good at. But ever since, every once in a while, I just get this. I don't know. Like, I just want to try new things and experience different. I don't know. My, my grandmother. So I'm going all over the place, but like my grandmother lives in, I'm um, an artist colony in Northern, Northern, Northern Minnesota. And they have all of these, like you can learn how to make your own canoe and you can learn how to like make Viking weaponry. And I would just love to do every single one of those courses. How cool would it be to say I made my own Viking sword? That is a skill I want to have, a completely useless skill, but also <laughs> one that I really, really want. So life well, is life.
0: say that and then, then, just as soon as you finish your weapon, who's to say a boatload of Vikings won't uh, rush up on shore? Yeah, and that is that that
1: true. Are- it is Minnesota. Stranger things have happened.
0: <laughs> the way the uh, news has been recently, I- I'm ruling out nothing. Who knows? <laughs> That's what
1: I thought. So I I used to teach um, a book called Station Eleven in oh. my classes, and it's by Emily St. John um, Emily St. John Mandel, um, and it is about a flu that wipes out 99.9% of the population, okay? So my students did not like this book, partly because they thought that it wasn't very realistic. The question that I asked at the beginning of each quarter is how worried or not worried are you about a flu wiping out a large portion of the world? And their answer was like, I'm not worried at all. that at all and now I kind of want to put this I took the book off the syllogist and I sold this just because everyone didn't like it but now I'm considering putting it back on because um well first of all I think it's brilliant I love this book um it's super tense it's gorgeously written but they just weren't connecting with the characters but I think that that might be different now in the wake of everything that's happened
0: yeah no it, it, it could be a great wonderful primer for the students that that did read it That'd be yes,
1: be to you. Or we kind of a stressful parking back to the times that maybe they don't want to think about again. I've it's it's interesting with my with my syllabus this quarter of I've actually been offering a few alternate readings. So like for my portfolio class, we um were reading this book called On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong and I adore this book. He is a really fantastically talented poet. Um, this is his debut novel. And while I was reading it and kind of rereading it, it's, it's quite, it's a heavy book. Um, and I knew that some of my students emotionally just were not going to be in a place where they were going to be able to receive that well. Um, and so I actually offered two alternate books that they could read that had Similar things that I wanted to talk about in publishing, um, but offered kind of a, like a, for lack of a better word, fluffier take on certain elements. And they are enjoying those books as well. So I think that as educators, especially at this time, just really having an open dialogue with your students and also understanding that not everyone is in the privileged position that we are or that I am of being safe, being comfortable, being overall pretty happy even in this situation. Um, and they're going through a lot. They're going through a lot right now. So just being, being more lenient than you would normally.
0: So far so good here at the old Kent farm, although we're taking nothing for granted and uh, <laughs> uh, we're just playing it day by day, same as the the rest. I, I, I keep saying this is my first pandemic, so. <laughs> we'll yeah. See how we how we do. How uh, how is this impacting um promotion for iCosmo, your writing career, your life? How how are you uh, coping with COVID-19 and the quarantine?
1: Um you know, overall emotionally, I and I was talking again to my students about this just yesterday of I'm trying very very hard actually not to process what's happening because if I feel like I feel like if I think about it way too much that's when the spiraling is going to start to happen so i have just kind of done my best to keep a positive attitude by um checking in on the people i love and making sure that everyone is okay but not watching the news every day and not really sinking into it because i think you can sink so far into it that it's hard to kind of crawl your way back out Um, i have a lot of deadlines this summer so i recently just dropped out of teaching summer school um, because the transition to virtual learning from an on-ground class has been really rewarding but also very challenging so it's been extremely time consuming and i have found that i have been able to write nonfiction during this time um, where the facts are kind of already out there and i'm just assembling them in an interesting way but writing fiction currently has been very, very difficult. I've been able to brainstorm things and I've been able to sit outside in my garden with my notebook and kind of like write story maps and think about outlines. But as far as putting uh, pen to paper and writing scenes, I've been stuck. And I think that that partially has to do with the fact that I'm working so much at my other job right now um and once that slows down a little bit and hopefully during the summer i think that things will turn around a little bit
0: so i'm curious for the for those listening who say that yes i want to be like carly that sounds like the plan uh let's not process this because honestly um and and i'm guilty of this i, I i've lost entire days of watching uh the, Captain Trump's uh, press conference, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 paying attention to the news, and then you know I've lost. I I was just going to pay attention for an hour, and now four hours later. Uh, what happened to all of my writing time? It, it's gone, and I don't know um, that I'm any better. I, I want to be completely uninformed, especially I want to know what's going on locally, what things I need to be aware of that are going to impact me and my family directly. But beyond that, I don't know how helpful it is to to witness history.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's obviously going to be plenty of time to process it later, potentially our entire lives. Um, and A lot of the information that I'm seeing coming out about COVID, either it is repetitive, uh, where it's just kind of like repeating the information that has already been said, or it's just recounting like personal stories of people who've died. And obviously, like those are super important to hear about and to understand the personal impact that this is taking on like our country and the world. But my job as I see it right now, is to be there for my husband it's to be there for my family and it's to be there for my students and if I can do those things then I'm gonna make it out okay and the only way that I can do those things and be a positive force in the classroom and to the people kind of in my near like in my vicinity is if I keep myself in a headspace where I am not processing that all at once um So kind of little bits of information, as you were saying, making sure that we know the crucial information about um, lockdowns and social distancing and what we're supposed to be doing. But I cannot absorb all of the stories of grief right now. I just can't do it. And I, I, I feel part of me feels guilty about that, that I'm not engaging in that way. But I also know that I'm going to be more of a positive force for other people if I am in a positive, or at least relatively positive mind space.
0: So what does that look like? So I, I assume you're under quarantine yes. uh, all day like the, the rest of the country. Um, what? How are you structuring your day to keep yourself in a positive uh, place to keep moving and, and, and make sure you're hitting your deadlines?
1: So um, I wake up at 6.30 in the morning and my husband and I take a one hour walk through the dark neighborhood with our dog and just kind of take the time to talk to each other and breathe and just casually wake up. I come back, I make coffee um, and then I sit for about two to three hours in my back garden like as the sun comes up and also as like it starts to get warmer with my coffee, with my notebook writing, brainstorming, um, and also preparing for that day's classes, and then I go to my classes, so we have all Zoom classes, I'm teaching again fiction and um, portfolio class, and then afterwards talking with the students, staying on Zoom, like just chatting, and a lot of times we don't even necessarily talk about class, we just talk about like how their life is going and kind of creative projects on their own and things like that, Um, and in the evenings we've been watching a lot of movies, so I uh, just started Parasite. So we are halfway through Parasite, and it is fantastic, but I actually had to pause it because I was so stressed. And it wasn't like anything really that scary was happening, but it's it's one of those movies that you feel like you were living inside it. Um, and that's, ki- that's quite scary. But uh, we, we were just watching a lot of stupid stuff, too. Just stuff that <laughs> like, just like reality TV that just means nothing, but keeping myself happy um have you given in to the
0: cultural demands and watched tiger king yeah
1: i have (laughs) i really have and i don't regret it i those people i just kind of got to the end of the program and i thought like if every single one of these people was eaten by a tiger like would i be sad about it (laughs) probably i mean i would feel kind of indifferent so
0: by <laughs> the time I got to the end, I felt like Carol Baskin was the person I <laughs> I liked the best. Like, it was, all crazy.
1: Carol. Carol. I, Carol I, I think she probably killed
0: her husband, but he sounded like he was kind of a creep, and some I don't know, some people just gotta go. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's, it's just a, it's a really really fascinating program, and I thought that it was very well done, and you cannot create characters that are that just out there. I, I think that those Like if you had made those characters in fiction, people would be like, "Not, not believable enough. There's no one out there like that. But yet here they are.
0: Well, hopefully some of, uh, some of the, uh, all of the things that are, no, uh, we're not believable, we're not possible will be changed a little bit. And uh, without diverging into in, in politics, I think frequently about the current president of the United States, um and if anyone had written that fictional president prior to this presidency no one would have bought it like of course not that could never happen in the united states and yet here we are right. <laughs> which again as of april 15th by the time you're listening to this esteemed uh, audience who knows what's happened
1: now i i think that taking a deeper look at a lot of the dystopian novels that have come out in the last 10 20 30 years and seeing how closely they relate to um, what's happening now. My computer is overheating a little bit, so I'm just like raising it up. So if you hear that it is because I am trying to elevate it. It's, um, <laughs> I spilled coffee on my computer about a year ago. Um, and actually I didn't spill it. I was at a dog park and stupidly i was working on my computer and a pointer puppy jumped into my lap as i was taking a sip of coffee it wasn't my puppy and spilled coffee all over my computer and now it has problems with overheating but besides that everything was fine so i think i got off pretty lucky
0: yeah yeah no the computer's still working and you're obviously it's uh, managed not to melt <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> so far. yes. I, I i used to kind of put like a fan on it, got one of those like miniature miniature fan things that you use at Disney World.
0: I'm an old man, so I went through two uh, Xbox 360s back in the day with the Red Ring of Death. Uh, and by the second one, I had uh, just a uh, floor fan just right next to it. So whenever it was running, I just turned on the fan, kept it nice and cool and happy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that that is eventually what I'm going to have to do. My old Mac ran for like eight years. And for some reason, this one... Has just been um, having some issues, so I think I'm going to take the light off it.
0: And be part of the reason. What I'm trying to decide whether we should finish up with you know we'll talk about everything. Well, this doesn't need to be a plan, Uh, but I did want to ask you um, a little bit about um, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? uh when did did were you always uh, inclined that way or when did it take hold
1: yeah um i was supposed to be a doctor like this is what my parents or uh, my kind of my grandparents and my family were really like this you're smart uh, and thus you should be a doctor so i kind of grew up in that mentality if that's what i was always supposed to be but My mother and and also my dad has always encouraged um, my writing. So I started writing stories as early as I can remember. Um, So I used to, they got me like this book kit when I was five where you can like make your own picture book. And of course it was about dogs. Like my first ever book was about a dog, but, um, and it was about our dog Sally. And I used to love making up stories about like monkey astronauts and anything to do with animals. So I cannot remember a time where I wasn't creating stories.
0: Monkey astronauts. So there was uh, what I read about. It, I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, something called The Lady of the Tree. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so The Lady of the Tree is a novel that I wrote between the ages of nine and 12 to 13 years old. Um, It didn't have much plot. It was just a bunch of people riding around frantically on horses for no conceivable reason. There was like a love story in there that never really materialized. Um, But I was just absolutely obsessed with this world and creating these people, if I remember correctly, the hero's name was Democles Dershire, which I do not know how I came up with this no personality that's
0: great
1: it was it was just everything about it was terrible i think that some of the people were japanese even though like it took place in england and like why why are they there like it, nothing about that was explained There were like these mythical firebirds and this like twin sister who lives in a tree anyway um the most memorable thing about this book for me besides the fact that i was so wholly obsessed with writing it um was that i read the whole thing on film to the uh, Lord of the Rings soundtrack and then made my parents listen to all, I think it's like seven hours of it. Um, And they really (laughs) diligently did that. So when I was talking about the fact that they were supportive, they were really supportive of this whole um, writerly thing. But of course that book will never see the light of day. Um, But I did have, I I kind of, I printed it and I I cut out um, pictures from magazines of like who would play, play my characters, even though there was no like, movie version in my mind um and then on the back I had quotes from my mom and my dad about how much like they loved the book so you know if your mom loves a book obviously that (laughs) that is a really strong indicator of success there
0: the finest book I've ever read by my own progeny yes the author's mom
1: <laughs> exactly i think i also made up the quotes too that's the worst part like i don't think <laughs> my parents actually said those things i think that i just put words in their mouth there <laughs>
0: well that could be uh good training depending on who your publisher is later down the
1: road. <laughs> you know you never know never know
0: so when uh, when did this go from a fun thing that you do to I know that this is a thing I'm going to do always, this is the thing I want to do with my life?
1: Yeah, um, I think that I always knew that this was what I wanted to do. It was just having the courage to tell that to myself, like actually out loud and to other people and to understand that this was the thing that I wanted to do as a career and not just as um, a hobby. So originally... I was supposed to be a neurologist because I really do love science and neurology is ultra fascinating, but I knew that it was just not for me. Like by my freshman year, I was kind of, I'd switched to American studies, um, and a major called peace war and defense so like I went through a lot of incarnations. so first I was gonna be a neurologist and then I was gonna be a counterintelligence specialist and I had a professor who sat me down and he said like Carly you're actually really good at this and what that means is that you are gonna to have to make life and death decisions for other people every day like I you will have to kill people are you okay with that? And I said, actually, no. So I write children's books now. And that was kind of the uh, the trajectory of that. So I switched to English um, when I was studying abroad so that no one knew about it. So I went to England and switched my major from Peace Corps and Defense to English um, with American Studies. And then after that, I went to Oxford with the goal of eventually becoming a professor um, and I studied neo slave narratives which are contemporary narratives of slavery. So I was really interested in Toni Morrison and Natasha Tretheway specifically. Um, and while I was wholly obsessed with that work, and I still think that it's extremely crucial important work, I was getting very, very depressed um, in If you are reading about slavery for 8 to 12 hours a day in a dark library, I don't know anyone who, who could actually be in that situation who has a soul and not be eventually kind of depressed by those readings. So every night at Oxford, after I had done all my research, I would come home and I would turn to YA books and children's books and books that had hope and that were just kind of cheery from start to finish where bad things happened but the bad things were overcome rather quickly and kind of in a neat like tight with a bow way even if they were potentially a little bit bittersweet um and i know i'm not describing all white books and all all children's books obviously that's that's covering everything with a kind of a wide blanket but um i needed something in the evening so that i could go to sleep And that's how I turned to children's books. So when I uh, did my second master's degree, I knew that I wanted to write for um, young adults and children and also taking everything I learned at Oxford about um, kind of diverse voices. And one of the reasons why I wanted to study new slave slave narratives and um, also kind of multiracial narratives and narratives by biracial people is I'm biracial myself. Not a lot of people recognize this because when you see the little Twitter heading, it's just me and I look very, very white. Um, but that is not the case. So I, I think that it's understanding that people come from diverse backgrounds, even if they don't necessarily look like that on social media.
0: They're making uh, assumptions about people based on appearances is just in general in life, a terrible mm-hmm. idea.
1: Yes, <laughs> but, yes. Um, and I think that even as I think that a lot of people make a lot of assumptions about authors when it comes to um, things like race and sexuality and because it's, it's, you're only seeing a very small part of our life and what we do. And um, yeah, I think that's all I'll say about that. But I, I understand what it is like to have people um, not get where you're coming from.
0: Well, unfortunately, I think uh, everybody gets at least a little bit of that in this uh, life, but some folks get a whole lot more than others. Absolutely. And um, I always, uh, I'm trying to think whether or not this is an appropriate story for a middle grade podcast, and if I have to think about it, it's probably not one. (laughs) But uh, well, I'll tell the I'll tell the I'll tell the the the, the cleaned up version. Um, I uh, worked in finance for first uh, fifteen years or so uh, right out of college. It was a it was a good job. I could write in the evenings, work finance. Uh, mm-hmm. And you look at me, and I I'm, I'm a white guy. I look like standard issue Indiana white guy. If you look up Hoosier on the internet, a picture of somebody somewhat similar to me is going to come up. Uh, And there were other white guys that that came over to me in the cafeteria who didn't know me that well, uh, but made that assumption and and began using some racist language. And I'm just staring at him like, really, you don't even want to test the waters and see whether or not that I'm I'm somebody that might be receptive to that. Uh, And then later they bumped into me again closer to my desk where I had a picture of me and my wife and my wife is African-American. Uh, and they looked at that, and then they glared at me, and they felt like, "Oh, you betrayed us." I'm mean, like, "No, we're no. being cautious. They <laughs> should think twice, my friends. Uh, things yep. are not as they appear."
1: <laughs> yeah, you you never you never know, and I think it's just just be a good person. I think it's kind of the moral of that. of Don't don't assume that everyone is going to think the way that you kind of the backwards way that you do. You know.
0: Well, this was obviously an, an incautious uh, couple of fellows, because even uh, if that hadn't been the case, just uh, being being casual with that in a business environment in general, not a, not a good uh, I don't uh, mode for success.
1: <laughs> I don't get
0: it. But it's... But, you know, it seems like just be a good person should be easy. And yet I see so many people struggling so hard with it. It must not be. <laughs> And every so often without incriminating myself, I, I, I realize after a little bit of distance, oh, in that situation, I was the bad person. <laughs> I need to work on that.
1: Sometimes, sometimes I think that having a, a healthy bit of retrospective of looking at the things, I mean, things that I've done, you know, when I was like 17 or 18 years old, it's like, oh, the bad decision. That was a really bad decision. Why did I do that? But no one, no one is perfect.
0: Well, sometimes you have to you have to learn from making the bad decision. Oh, that, that's why you wouldn't do that. And now I know that the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, because you've got uh, an impressive uh, academic background. You've got, what, a master's degree from Oxford, you mentioned. Uh, but then you've also got a master's in creative writing and publishing from the City University in London. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious in, in, in reading that, what is getting a master's in creative writing and publishing do for you that, that, that a master's in English from Oxford didn't already do?
1: So when I was at Oxford, I was trained to be a scholar. Um, I was trained to be a professor, someone who's going to be able to absorb knowledge, impart knowledge, everything in between. Um, and when I was at City. City is not a technical school because I, I feel like it's not really that classification, but we we learned a trade. So like my trade was, I understood about publishing. So things like rights, contracts, international publishing, um, what it actually means to be an editorial assistant, the different, what, what publicity is, how does that differ from marketing? Um, and what city allowed me to do was actually be immersed in an in industry Versus being immersed in a subject. So like Oxford, I studied texts. City, I studied an industry. And I think that the combination of both of those was super helpful because I understood going into into publishing publishing. what I was actually getting myself in for. Um, So when I was at City, I got an internship at Faber & Faber in London. Um, And Faber & Faber, their first editor was T.S. Eliot. Like it has this wonderful historic um, heritage and it was it was a lovely lovely place to be like I could not have asked for a better entry to publishing than city and in um, and favor. So together I have the writing side and kind of the business side of creative writing. And also at Oxford, I wasn't writing creatively in the same way, like I wasn't writing any fiction at all. Um, I was working on a thesis about Toni Morrison and Tasha Trethewey and
0: um, like vicarious
1: historicism. You know, that's, that's not really a term that I toss around um, in my daily life in publishing.
0: Well, maybe you could start. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Katie, <laughs> nice if I remember what it meant, um that would that would be that would be helpful. I think I actually came up with that term, if I remember correctly, of this was like my thing of vicarious historicism, whatever whatever that is.
0: I'm gonna toss that out in a future podcast. You just wait a steamed audience on okay. like, Let me podcast. let me know
1: what it means when you get there. I think that Oxford, it was it was this weird combination of everyone trying to prove that they were smarter than each other and if I made my texts so obscure that no one else could understand it like that meant that I was the smartest and I and going back and kind of rereading my stuff like what was I talking about and I I wrote this so um and maybe not all scholarship is like that, but that was part of the reason why after Oxford, I decided that I wasn't gonna go into academia. Ironic now that I teach creative writing, but you know I was gonna go on and get my PhD. I actually got into Oxford for their um, DPhil program, which is um, the same kind of as a PhD, different years and kind of different structure. But, uh, and I just decided that it wasn't for me because I didn't want this cutthroat competitive I'm smarter than you and intelligence is the thing that matters the most in the world because it's not um and I think that there's a certain arrogance about people who go to Oxford and my husband even noticed about me when I went there he was like your head is a lot bigger than it, than it used to be and it took me a while to kind of dial that back and be like oh oh maybe 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 he's right Maybe he's right. So now I've kind of got this middle ground of, I, I know all of these things,
0: but I'm no longer kind
1: of high up in the sky, scholarly, about it.
0: That was one nice thing. Uh, one, I, I, I didn't have the opportunity to go to Oxford, tragically. Um, I did uh, go to uh, to Indiana University. Uh, and while I was studying there, I was studying literature and, and, and writing. Um, I was also working a day job, which was wonderful because I go back to the day job and I talk about these writers and I get blank stares. I'm like, we have no idea who you're talking about. Uh, I'll never forget. I was I couldn't have been more thrilled to have gotten first an interview uh, with Richard Adams, available now at MiddleGradeNinja.com. Uh, and then later a blurb. And I, I walk into the office. I was out of college at that time. And I'm just over over you know, just overjoyed, uh, the happiest I could ever be. And I'm bragging to everyone and everyone just in turn says, Who 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 is this watership what now? <laughs> Which was a, a nice reminder of, hey, this is we all love books and writing. We're all having a great time, but let's keep this in perspective.
1: <laughs> yes. So I often I often talk to people about that of of you know, especially with my family and The other people in my family who are kind of like more distant relatives of have no idea about how publishing works or anything like that. And it's actually really, really nice to have those people in your life sometimes of getting that perspective of sometimes when you are in publishing and in the kind of business of books. Sometimes it's a very small world, which can be nice, but also sometimes it feels like that's the only thing that matters And it's really, really not, it's really not. So the the farther I get away from publishing in some ways, the happier I am. Um, And I tell this to my students, I feel like I keep saying that over and over again, but I think that when we come into publishing and come into writing stories, it's like we are presenting our souls on a platter and saying like, do you like this thing? I've made it, it's all of me. But really, it's not all of you. Like, the thing that you create is not you. It is a part of you. But you are so much more than that. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe this is something that people can recognize in quarantine when they aren't writing as much. Or maybe they are writing as much. But, like, take me. Like, when I started, I thought this book that I have written, If personally Lie Back, like, this is, this is, again, my soul on plate. But I also have a dog who like doesn't know that I'm a writer (laughs) at all and she still really really likes me like my parents still love me I still have a wonderful husband I like gardening I enjoy uh, walking I like hiking like none of these things have to do with my books at all Um, and I think that sometimes we can fall into this trap of thinking that our success or failure in creative writing has something to do with our value as people, um, and that to me is just factually incorrect. I don't know. Maybe you have a different opinion on that.
0: No, no, I uh, 100% agree. I used to have this foolish idea um, that uh, when I when I finally you know, Publish the the first book, then that would be everything, and all the every sacrifice, every bad thing that had happened prior to that would all be made better in that moment. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and Gloria waited. Uh, and I also had this foolish idea that I would know when people were reading me and that that would bring me satisfaction. You no, know, uh, I get messages every so often from somebody that uh, just read Pizza Delivery, and I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that thing exists. Ah, well, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> There's there's no there's no feeling of uh, whether you know ten people are reading ten thousand people however many folks are reading you're not going to know about it so that also uh, this. I don't know if it's a foolish idea, but this idea that if you could write a book that becomes a classic, then you are, in a sense, immortal. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that William Shakespeare is feeling particularly great. Whatever plane of existence he is, like, oh, they're still doing Hamlet. Oh, that's great. Yeah,
1: (laughs) and I think that that comes down to, again, like, what your belief on the afterlife is and all of that, and it's it's obviously nice when people read your work, and, like, I love connecting with readers, um, especially, like, readers who like, love dogs, and we can kind of talk about their pets. Like, I love when people send me pictures of their pets with the book. I think that that is probably my favorite thing. Um, But you're right, it's, I don't know, I I think that one of the things that I would have loved to kind of tell myself earlier is, first of all, there's no rush for any of this. I think that the publishing industry puts a lot of emphasis on youth and a lot of um, emphasis on... debut like if you don't debut powerfully for some reason like that's going to be the end of your career it's really not like this is a long journey um that's kind of what I'm realizing after I finish like my fourth book and also you just have to write what you love and whether or not other people are responding to that that is in a lot of ways outside of your control but the 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 measure of your success is how much kind of effort and how much love you put into it and not necessarily sales on Nielsen.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. If you're, if you're not happy doing what you're doing, why are you doing it?
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) What is the point? Why, why would we do this? Um, And I think there's also a lot of emphasis on suffering to create art, which I really hate the idea that you somehow have to suffer to do the work that you love. If you were if you were in that much pain when you're writing, why are you doing it? <laughs> I don't understand that. Especially if you're not on any sort of deadline and no one's quote-unquote expecting the book. Just have fun with it. Just have fun. It's supposed to be fun.
0: Have you been a sufferer in the past? Have you attempted that method? Oh, yes.
1: So my second book, Wild Blue Wonder... I cried the whole way through that book. Like, it is a very sad book, and I think that that's part of it. But I was writing about grief. I was writing my grief. And I was also writing out of a place of my debut YA novel did not do very well. So, like, I mean, it did it did well critically. Like, people, generally speaking, like, liked this book. But I also started writing this book when I was 19 years old. Like, it, it's not the book that I would have debuted with if I knew the whole emphasis that publishing puts on debuts um so my second book I had to write it really really quickly I it was about a topic that I wanted to write about but was also really heavy and really hard and it was a lot of like emotional excavation and also coming to terms while I was writing it with some of the reader reviews that I was getting of some people really, really liking it and other people hating it. And how do you write out of that space? So I think that this software novel, especially, that was the place where after that book, which I love the final product. And I, I actually, I'm really, really proud of that book, but I would never want to be in that space writing it again. So with Cosmo, one of the reasons why I chose to switch to middle grade and chose to write about A Golden Retriever was like, I just want to write this book in a total place of joy. Like, even when there are sad parts in the book, I was still writing them in like a loving, joyful way. I was excited to write the whole book. There was like enthusiasm behind it. I got giddy when I sat down to the computer. And I want to, I want to have that experience with all of my books. Like, maybe that's too much to ask for but that is the that is the goal
0: well i mean it's a it's it's a nice goal (laughs) i don't know if it's possible (laughs) so far all of my books have brought me at least some joy uh yes esteemed audience even the one you didn't like (laughs) i enjoyed it (laughs) so hopefully that uh that that will always continue um pivoting back to uh i well no you know what i wanted to ask you just a little bit more about. Um, right out of uh, college working uh, as an editor, uh, sitting near where TS Eliot once sat. Uh, How did that set you up and prepare you? What kind of perspective on publishing did that give you for that you could take forward in your writing career?
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, the thing just the idea of, I think that the biggest thing I learned right off the bat was just how much editors play a hand in the success of a book. So there was an editor called Alice Swan at Faber, and I learned pretty much all of my kind of editorial skills from her, especially when it came to structural edits. And they play such a big hand in shaping a book. And I never really realized, like, when you turn in as an author of this draft that you think is kind of close to perfect, just how many rounds it goes through to get it to this place where it's readable and where it's really, really tight and the story flows and yeah, editors are like magicians and that's, that was the biggest thing. And just seeing a book come in from many, like a manuscript form from agents. And I, I played a part in, um, I did a lot of reader reports. So I would get like 10 to 20, manuscripts at a time and I would write like a one paragraph review of what I liked about it and then kind of ordered it from like one to 20 of this was the best book I got out of this batch um and these ones I didn't think felt like favor and it's not necessarily that they were quote we we'll call like bad books everything that we were getting was like a really strong submission but um there's kind of a brand at favor like it's very literary like it's very warm um And the type of books, it's like more prize winning than kind of commercial. So, um, kind of a mix of the two. But I got to work with some really, really amazing authors, some of whom uh, came um, kind of New York Times bestsellers. And seeing the evolution of their books was really helpful for when I started my own writing journey. Um, And also just kind of the ins and outs of what an agent does, um, what a managing editor does, what publicity uh, department does um and going in and I think that there's a big thing with publishing of from the outside it doesn't seem very transparent and being able to kind of pull back the veil and actually be inside that machine was extremely helpful and understanding that the authors who are coming in are real people and if they're real people and I'm a real person I could do that too why not so <laughs> helpful from that end
0: uh, and then um, you mentioned that uh, your debut was not ideal for a debut. So because you put that out, I, I would never ask you that out of the blue. But because you said that now, yeah. I uh, I feel the door is open for me I'm to ask to about, about that book uh, that made it not ideal for the debut. And what would you have done in retrospect to have made, to have made it there?
1: I probably and I, I'm not saying that the, the Deferred playback is a bad book. It's not a bad book. It's just not is gonna kill me if I said it. it's just not very like it was it was just all the books that I was reading I just kind of put them together and like this is what contemporary literature YA is so I'm just gonna take pieces not really take pieces but thinking about like what does John Green do what does Jandy Nelson do what are all these other authors do instead of having a voice of like what does what do I do and I think that that was my debut experience of I didn't produce something that felt like only i could have written it and with wild blue wonder that's something that i started to fix and like with my middle grade that's something that i'm really really doing so i also felt a lot of pressure as i was saying with the um kind of youth component of i had to my deadline for myself was 25 Like, I have to have a book published by the time I'm 25. That's just what I have to do. So I rushed this thing because it's like, well, all the great novelists get published by the 25. I don't know where I got this number. I don't think this is even correct. But in (laughs) in my mind, that was the number that I was going for. So I got my agent when I was 24. And sure enough, like, I think I was like 25 and a half um, when the book hit shelves. So I made that goal. But at kind of what cost to the book, like, I didn't really take... This was the first, besides Lady of the Tree, it was the first book that I had finished at all. So I didn't look back on it. I didn't think, is this the thing that I actually wanted? Like, is this my brand? Is this my most authentic self? No, it was just, this is my attempt at writing a YA novel. Here it is. So yeah,
0: between somebody that just wrote their debut, uh, apropos of nothing, and you who have two master's degrees, your undergraduate, and have you know, studied... Uh, literature thoroughly. I I would think that would give you at least some kind of like a...
1: I, you know, you would think that, but with, and it it did in a lot of ways of, I, I read a lot of, I understood what makes a story strong in terms of pacing, in terms of character development. I had all of that stuff, but I don't think I gave myself enough time with fiction to understand what my voice was. And now I feel like I figured that out. So the first book to me didn't feel like it was mine in the way that I wanted it to be, and I don't know if I can express that like more clearly. Perhaps I can, but um,
0: I'd love for you to try. What 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 is it that makes your voice your voice?
1: I think that when I am writing from a perspective of an animal somehow my voice comes through more strongly. And I think that it is that love for the characters. Like I really, really liked my characters in It First Fly Back, but I wouldn't like jump in front of a car for them. And I would I would push Cosmo out of the way. I really would. <laughs> I just love him to the core of me. And that's not something that I felt for the characters of my first book. I really liked them. Like they're they're cool kids, but they're not my heart in the same way.
0: Well do, and I I I I asked this facetiously because I know there's probably not a master plan for these are the books I'm going to write, and then when I get to number twenty at the end or or, or whatever. Um, but do you foresee yourself writing more books from an animal perspective?
1: Yes, um, and actually, I have a ton more. Um, I can't really announce everything yet but um the next book i can talk about just a tiny bit um and it is from the perspective of a an alien cat so it is an alien who comes down to earth and he is meant to be a yellowstone park ranger um but there's mix-up and he gets trapped in the body of a stray cat um So yes, so it's like, it's kind of an animal, but he's also an alien. So yes, and then the book after that is a twist on an animal. Is
0: there a title slash release date range? I,
1: I cannot announce the title for the cat book or the other book, but... It will probably, with, with COVID, it's interesting. I'm still almost waiting for the email of, like, we're going to get pushback. So far, it hasn't happened. But it'll be out, hopefully, in the U.K. in September um, and probably in the U.S. in December. And then I have three other books, five no, five other books as well, all about animals. But
0: they're all yeah, in some, some they're
1: all something to do with animals.
0: And then they, they should all be uh, coming to us in the next few years. Yes, you're going to be busy. That's extremely exciting.
1: Yes, I'm. This is this is part of the reason why I'm kind of going back and forth of like trying to manage all of the school and all of the um, other commitments of writing about animals. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm hoping to just become like the Doctor Doolittle of books of just Animal Empire really, and a lot of this is just completely selfish where I just really, really wanna know about these specific types of animals. And um, a lot of my family, so my mom is, uh, my mom is autistic, she's on the autistic spectrum. And I kind of go back and forth of like, I've had a doctor say that I am also on the autistic spectrum but like, I don't really know. And I think that my thing is animals Of I'm just absolutely obsessed with knowing everything about them and like the girl in my next book is basically like a little me of she's absolutely obsessed with animal facts and um, she ends up kind of working at an aquarium and learning about all the different um, kind of like sea lions and, and penguins and all that so I am purposely just putting all these extra animals in my book so that I can have an excuse to
0: research them. How do you research are you just pulling up internet articles or are you going oh, stuff. so to be-
1: I am a voracious reader and I have recently um so I'm researching a book right now I don't think I can talk about it but it's on a specific animal and um I am reading quite a lot of research studies on that specific animal from like 1997 to now um, and just kind of the evolution of what scientists are understanding about that specific animal, and how far they have come. Of like, oh, this animal—it's like kind of smart too. Oh, this animal is actually a genius. Like, and through those research studies, I actually found out that um, like groundhogs have an entire language. Oh. Like An entire like, if you just Google this, it is fascinating like there's this researcher in ohio who has spent the last 20 years just researching the language of groundhogs and i was thinking how could i get that job that sounds really really wonderful but um yeah they have it's it's very complex too so um they're actually uh developing like ai to translate groundhog speak into like human language
0: so there could a um- Conceivably, come a time where we could have a conversation.
1: We'll be able to speak to Groundhog. Yes.
0: Oh my God, you just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) So, we will always know whether or not there will be six months of winter that will be very specific.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: It's quite Do they know weird. what they're what they're talking about? I mean, is it just there's food over here? Let's go back to shelter. I it think they. I,
1: I think I'm talking about prairie dogs. Sorry, it's really oh, late. Present. Prairie oh. dogs. Sorry, prairie dogs. It's. I've been up since six, 6 a.m. Uh, but it's prairie dogs. But um, yeah, conceivably they will. It's it's more like okay, there's a predator over here, or like get out of my burrow, or this is where the food is, or things like that. But As humans, what we talk about, is it really more complex than that most of the time? Not really. If you listen to all of our quarantine conversations, it's mostly about dinner right now. So I think that when uh, we really get down to it and we are kind of sequestered in this way, it's,
0: yeah. I bought my wife a, a T-shirt back in college that uh, had two stick figures, uh, and one of them was—they were both uh, holding their little stick figure hands uh, over their mouths, laughing, and one said "movie quote," ha ha ha, "movie quote." The other one says, "Yes, movie quote," ha ha ha. And when she would wear that around uh, friends, I noticed they—they uh, they wouldn't say movie quotes because it would be awkward because of the shirt, and then there would just be long periods of silence that <laughs> with nothing to fill. <laughs> Yep. especially As at that uh, young age of uh, right around 18 19 half of your experiences things you've seen on the on, on the screen and so I certainly had a, a nice arsenal of movie quotes that I've uh, abandoned
1: <laughs> I mean who knows if groundhogs not groundhogs prairie dogs if prairie dogs had television who knows what they'd be talking about you know I mean it could it could expand their vocabulary just a lot of prairie dog movies.
0: I'll well, oh, Just fantastic. quoting what Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like, yep. I don't know what the rest of that movie was about, but that start with the prairie dogs, oh, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: So I often wonder about, like, my dog, um, she when there is another dog on television, she will be really in tune with it. So I was researching the other day um, New Guinea singing dogs, and, which are fascinating if you haven't looked it up, but there is this rare breed of dog um, that they have just captured images of in the wild after like 20 years they thought that they were extinct in the wild but they actually sing and so their song is has actually been um compared to songs of humpback whales and my dog i was playing these on like, like on youtube and she was just like where are I have to find them so I think that they're the dogs can watch tv a little bit if there's interesting sounds and other dogs on there sure
0: dogs of Any kind. yeah no our cat per except if there's a commercial for cat food and there's the cats on screen yep yep makes sense to me absolutely then <laughs> or later we'll have uh cat flicks or whatever <laughs> it'll be our own streaming service you can enjoy well
1: they i so when i used to um you know before the pandemic when i would go into work i would uh leave on specific music for my dog but it was like a a cd that i bought that's like a five-hour cd she's only gone for like three and a half hours but i wanted to just in case i ran late um and it's music that is that just been composed specifically for what dogs like. And I don't know if I've been completely calmed with this and it's just regular classical music, but she seemed to be pretty calm around it. So could be. Maybe I've been tricked. That's, uh, but...
0: definitely a, a quality of Cosmo. Cosmo likes the music. Uh, he the does, yes. <laughs> and Cosmo's very uh, literal. I wanted to ask you about this. So, one of the specific things you did because it's, it's a tricky thing to write a first person, I don't have to tell you, you did it, uh, but, but I would imagine a, a tricky thing to write a first person uh, perspective from a dog's point of view, uh, because obviously this dog is smart enough to narrate a novel. <laughs> the, the dog knows things about the family that I think were maybe more insightful than if they'd had Dr. Phil uh, living with them in, in, in different moments of the dog. is uh, Cosmo's very insightful, but is also very literal. There's uh, metaphors are, are completely lost on, on Cosmo. So how did you decide what the rules are to keep them consistent, but also bend them enough to make sure that you've got a coherent narrative that can be enjoyed by humans as well as dogs?
1: Yeah, I kind of stuck to anything that was rooted in emotion, Cosmo was going to understand. And that does come back to the idea um, and the scientific fact that dogs can smell adrenaline and they can smell fear and the emotions that we are experiencing. So I kind of went with that. And so anything to do with the divorce, anything that Max is specifically telling him about their family relationships, because um, dogs really are part of the family, right? So I anything that was family, anything that was really, really emotionally based, I had Cosmo understand. And anything that was more literal that I could make a joke out of, he didn't understand it. And I think that half of the distinction came down to, how can I make this funny? um, And how can I make this kind of dog-like? And also thinking about the things that um, my dogs don't seem to understand or seem to get confused by like Halloween costumes and things of that nature of like, oh, I just really don't want to do this. Or I'm guessing that a lot of um, human phrases that are metaphors they probably wouldn't understand. And there was no, like, I didn't have really a like, Cosmo understands this, but he doesn't understand that. And this is also where editors come in of, there were some times where Cosmo was just way too philosophical, like just to the level of like, he's like Harvard educated. And my editors kind of brought that back down to a level of, um, understanding so going back to the whole editors are magicians thing i think that they they really helped with that as well
0: i'm just chuckling at the idea of cosmo pondering the meaning of life Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah so he he can be kind of lightly philosophical um and there are some things that he says in there of like he he views heaven as like a bright and endless sky and things like that of of I'm, I'm guessing that my own dog isn't isn't really contemplating the afterlife. But then again, we don't know that. I, we don't know. So I, I think that anything that it did, it does obviously stretch the bounds of what dogs understand. But most of the things that I have put in there, I don't think actually stretch it that far. And the only people who have had, who've kind of questioned Cosmo's level of understanding that I found on like Goodreads, um, are people who don't really have dogs or don't like dogs or more like cat people. And that's fine. That's fine too. But I think that people who have grown up with dogs and people who really, really love dogs are like, yeah, my dog gets that. My dog would understand.
0: Something I I noticed because I after I read a book I always check uh, reviews at least a little bit to see uh, if uh, there if I'm if I'm understanding what readers who enjoy the book and who don't like the book
1: mm-hmm. if if
0: I'm. Uh, if, if my own view can be changed or strengthened by by their view, uh, and something I noticed consistently came up, and this is a slight it's, it's a slight spoiler, but I think it must be a good one, is I noticed a number of reviews saying, "Don't worry, the dog lives." Yes,
1: <laughs> he is alive. Every time I do an event, I want to wear a T-shirt that's like, Cosmo lives the whole way through. (laughs) Just in my mind, he is like the bionic dog. He just keeps going. He's just infinitely 13 years old. So, yeah, that was something that was really important to me. And it's actually to me i mean i should have expected it but i actually found it quite shocking like the amount of people who were like you can't kill cosmo it's like i was never planning on killing him like there's a point in there where he minorly injures his paw, and like that that destroyed me (laughs) to give him like a little bit of a paw injury where he ends up being completely fine so no there was there was never a point where i was going to kill him off and i think that that has obviously been a trend in dog novels. Of, um, and it feels, and, and no, no kind of offense to anyone who has done this in their books, but it feels a little bit like a cheap emotional trick to kill the dog at the end. Um, let's just let's just see them live their lives, and there are other things that we can do to kind of bring in the tears. Um, but when you have connected with this character, I, I still remember. The first book that ever made me cry, which is a book called Where the Red Fern Grows, um, and Dan and Anne, and I just, I wanted to throw that book across the room. I was so, not just upset, but also just angry that this had been done to me, of like, you fall in love with these dogs, and then they're, and, um... Yeah, I've kind of promised my readers that I will actually never kill an animal in any of my books. And I very much plan to keep that promise because I just I like animals in their state of being alive.
0: I think it was uh, Aaron Bow. go back and check esteemed audience on a, on a previous episode, who mentioned the, the way the red fern grows uh, and that it had so angered her that she wrote another book in spite of. Uh, or or uh, with spite for that book, she wanted to do a, a, a better version. <laughs> so I think it's uh, upset and possibly inspired uh, entire generations of, of, of writers. <laughs> yeah,
1: I've, I've heard a really interesting thing about Wilson Rawls recently, um, who's the author of Where the Red Fern Grows, that um, he burned all of his manuscripts. So he had all of these books. I think he had like 20 other books that he burned all of them and i think it was his wife who saved where the red friend grows like from a fire maybe i'm getting this completely wrong but yeah he was a notorious self-critic so which just feels highly dramatic if you're just burning all of your work but um he's the same person who wrote a very dramatic book so i think that it makes sense it all makes sense now
0: well, sometimes when I read about writers uh, acting odd and having certain proclivities, it it makes me calm down. Like, eh, I'm doing all right <laughs> so far. So Thanks. good. Uh, although, uh, to the best of my knowledge, my story is not over yet. So we'll see. <laughs> well, one uh, one more question about Icosmo, and we'll we'll start to think about calling it a night because I know you've had a long day, and I want to end this while we're still having fun. Um, but something that uh, fascinated me is there is a quote at the beginning of the story uh, from William Butler Yeats, and it is it's a beautiful quote, and it's, it's, it's very appropriate because it's about dancing. We're about to read a story that, that which dancing features heavily. Uh, but I did want to ask you, why was that quote something you wanted readers to have in mind as they start the story, and what do you feel that that adds to the reading experience of having that right up front?
1: I think I wanted to set the tone that even though this is a commercial book, it's also a book that has a really big literary heart. Like Cosmo is very philosophical. And I thought that starting with that quote of like with a, poetic quote like with like a philosophical quote it kind of set the idea of like what Cosmo's voice was going to be and I think the quote if I'm not butchering right now is like you can never know the dancer from the dance and the way that Cosmo um dances he's dancing with all of himself and I wanted to get that point across that he's not just doing this doggy dance because he likes dancing, he's doing it for himself, for his family, for his love of it. Um, and what he is producing is his heart, I
0: think. So there's, is that sort of a signal? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the start of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn where there's that notice that, hey, those uh, searching for meaning beyond uh, what's on the page will be shot. I, I can't summarize Twain adequately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is it, so it's kind of a signal that, hey, if you're looking for deeper meaning, keep looking, you're going to find it.
1: Kind of, I think so. Like, I think that I, from what I've seen with reviews, this is a book that a lot of different age groups can enjoy. And that was always my intention of, this is a book for kind of middle graders, um, but I have had a bunch of women over 65 write me these long letters about their dogs and how much they loved iCosmo because it reminded them of like their boomer or their like Rudy or you know the way Cosmo's playing in the snow and like I get pictures of people's like elderly dogs and I think there's something about like elderly dogs especially that transcends generations of like we can all really appreciate like what it means to love a dog who is aging and also elderly so I think that it may be a signal that um it can be it's kind of a crossover book it could be appreciated by a number of generations and and I love seeing especially like parents read this to their kids and I've had like a lot of grandparents contact me who've been reading it to their kids as well especially like during quarantine like over the phone and um things like that so hopefully that and also just to be honest I like with Quotes. I just Google like dancing quotes, and then I just spend <laughs> a lot of time looking through it. So I think that you have probably um, picked apart a lot more of maybe what I had intended there. But now that I look back on it, maybe that's what I was intending all along, setting the tone, setting the atmosphere. But also, I just
0: thank you for your honesty with, with your background. There. I would have just assumed that you had most of Eats memorized. And oh, you no. No,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not that fancy. <laughs>
0: Uh, Here's a question I've been trying to be good enough to ask every writer I I remember to ask it. And that's because I always want to set the show up to if I were going to be on somebody's podcast, what would I want that experience to be like? And so a question that seems lazy that's hopefully useful to you is what is a question that you haven't been asked about iCosmo that you wish you'd been asked that you'd love to answer?
1: Oh, uh, probably have I been training my dog to do doggy dance competitions? And uh, no one's asked me that yet. Um, and the answer is no, because she is not a very skilled dancer. We have been doing nose work lately, which is a new sport that I have discovered, which um, has to do with like her sniffing out different scents in the yard and a variety of kind of like boxes. So I'm also reading this um, really wonderful book about a woman who like trained her dog to be like a search rescue dog. And I would really love to do that, um, but no doggy dancing as of yet. Maybe in the future. Well, we have got a,
0: a lot of books coming. Uh, so there's, there's a good possibility that you might have to do that research. Yes. <laughs> <some point>. Yes. <laughs> have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them?
1: So because I have just finished writing a book about an alien cat, I will say that I do not believe that aliens would travel to earth in a saucer. But I do believe in aliens so but i think that the flying saucer is a human construction i think that it would be much more complex with that no i have one not seen one because i don't believe the flying saucers exist but i do believe in aliens
0: you think that aliens have come here in some of the type of vehicle
1: i don't think that they have come here yet because i feel like they would probably make their presence known potentially But I think that it is
0: coming. Oh, not me. Uh, if I'm an alien and I'm hovering above <laughs> Earth and I watch humanity for a while and my buddy's like, hey, let's, let's go down and say, hey, let's, let's land on the White House lawn. Da, 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 hold on. Let's just well, see what they do. Uh, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe a generation or two from now we'll come back.
1: <laughs> the whole idea, I think that one of, was it, I think it was Stephen Hawking who said that, like, out of all of the places, why the heck would the aliens come here? Like, we just have a very, very high impression of ourselves as humans. And I think that's quite evident um, based on, like, everything that we kind of do to animals of, like, we are the best. Why wouldn't they want to come to Earth? Well, I'm sure that there are other places that are kind of better, um, potentially.
0: Once they experience cheese Whiz, that might... <laughs>
1: oh, maybe. I don't know. It's best the that, best that humanity has to offer
0: there. I think, that, I think that's our uh, top gift. Well, my uh, final question for you uh, is always some variation of if you could go back and give yourself some bit of information, I'm assuming you're doing this with your students now, what are you telling them? What would have made your writing path easier if you knew it when you started? And what would you like other writers to know as they're starting their journey?
1: Um, Not everyone's advice is good advice, I think, was the biggest thing. I realized when I was in another program so when I was at City University of London I had a really really wonderful mentor who did adult nonfiction, and he told me for my YA book that I should get rid of the teenagers and make the whole book from the perspective of the 84 year old man and he was a very famous writer I'm not gonna say his name but like this he had this movie about his life where like a very famous actor played him and obviously he was very good at his job but i knew in my gut that that was incorrect advice and that was the first time that i was actually confronted with someone who supposedly actually does know what they're doing but is giving me bad advice and it would have been bad advice because i wouldn't have been able to write that book otherwise i wanted to write about teenagers i wanted to write about kids um So taking advice from people you trust and learning how to trust your gut when it comes to writing advice Um, and also slowing down. Like There is no rush to any of this unless you are looking to writing to feed your family and you have to get that book out now. Um, If you are an aspiring novelist and you have a day job and... Like what, why do you need to be published by the time you're 25 years old? There's no, there's no reason for that. There really isn't.
0: Well, it seems to have worked out for somebody I've recently spoken to.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't regret any choices that I made like in my writing journey and I'm really happy with where I ended up, but I think the amount of stress and like pressure that I put myself under to make it here maybe is the reason why I now have to do yoga in the evenings. So if I could have just done everything, but been less stressed about it, I think that that would have made me a lot happier.
0: I think that's an excellent note to end on Carly. Mm -hmm. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, uh, get more information about you, follow your tweets, all that good stuff.
1: Yes. So you can follow me on Twitter at Carly Sarosiak and also on Instagram at Carly Sarosiak. And I, uh, this will shock you if you listen to this whole thing but i mostly tweet about animals so um <laughs> and lots of lots of my dog on instagram
0: uh, and as always uh, Steam aliens find me at middlegrade ninja.com uh you know who i am uh, download your free copy of Banneker bones and the giant Robo Buppies, carly this has been wonderful thank you so much for uh, making the time this evening and for for sharing your insight. Well, thank you
1: for having me. This has been really wonderful. And sorry if I talked too much about groundhog slash prairie dogs.
0: But I think I would say that we should have spent more time talking about prairie dogs. And I'm going to be on the Internet finding out as much as I can about this prairie dog language and how (laughs) how close we are to a conversation with prairie dogs, because that's going to change everything. That's almost as exciting as if we were literally talking to an alien, Uh, maybe more exciting.